narrativizing the Jewish past has been embedded in a Eurocentric framework. But the lines of where we draw the boundaries between Europe and, you know, not Europe will change. We are part of Muslim history. Salonika, I think, historically would have been considered a, if not the center of the Ladino-speaking cultural universe. Salonika is the only Jewish labor town in the whole world, a city where you can find people working at the ports, uh, working in all aspects of the laboring classes. The process of the end of the Ottoman Empire and the incorporation of Salonika into Greece does change the geographic placement. Jewish autonomy in Salonika maybe even make more sense than Jewish autonomy in Palestine. Salonika would still hold a kind of mythic, almost, or legendary status in the diaspora. Salonika as the third uh, homeland of the Sephardic Jews, or Eretz Israel, Sephardad, and then Salonika, not the Ottoman Empire, not Greece, not a country, but the city itself. Welcome to Joy in Conversation, a podcast about Jewish history and culture. It's with scholars, but it's for everyone. I'm Dan, and I'll be your host. Join me and find joy in conversation because, well, it's a mitzvah. Growing up, I knew exactly what it meant to be Jewish. For my family, it didn't necessarily revolve around religion. The synagogue was not the place where I sought out and saw Jewish culture expressed. What I knew to be Jewish as a way of being was impressed upon me by hearing New York-accented conversations sprinkled with bits of Yiddish, a few words here and there that even after generations of assimilation into American society couldn't be dislodged from my family's conversations. Being Jewish meant trips to my great-grandmother's walk-up apartment in Brooklyn. It was delicatessens, half-sour pickles, marble rye, pastrami and corned beef. It was a green can of Dr. Brown's celery soda. Being Jewish was a bagel with lox or whitefish, capers and onions. Being Jewish was klezmer music and stories of someone's great uncle and the Tsar's army and a boat to America and some pretty hazy details in between. There was also some talk of the fur industry. Being Jewish meant getting Seinfeld in ways that some of my friends just couldn't. I was pretty sure I knew a thing or two about what it meant to be Jewish and all the trappings of life that came along with that. But revelations rarely occur when you expect them to. They often happen in the least expected of places. We don't exactly schedule our revelations. When I was in high school, after years of visiting relatives in New York and internalizing exactly what it meant to be Jewish, I got my first job working in an immigrant family-owned pizzeria. After long nights of operating the pizza ovens, we would end the shift by making a batch of dough. I loved this part of the job. Late at night, the restaurant was finally closed, the customers fed and back home, the orders were done coming in at breakneck speed, the kitchen was clean, and after this one task, I could go home and I could collapse. This was when the owner, the old man, would enter the kitchen to make a batch of dough, a closely guarded family recipe. 
I cherished these moments because they offered a real contrast to so much of what I didn't like about working in a kitchen. Kitchen culture can be sort of like the food that you send back at a restaurant. A little too salty for my taste, and at times, quite unsavory. Needless to say, if I needed any more reminding of what it meant to be Jewish, a few hours in a hot, loud, and crass kitchen would be a crass course in the flip side of learning what some people thought it meant to be Jewish. But when Nick, the old man, the immigrant dad, and the owner of this restaurant would make dough with me, all of this changed. In the night kitchen, it was just us, a vat of dough, a dough scraper, and a scale. It would take a little over an hour, and the whole time, the two of us would talk. Nick knew that I was interested in history, and as the years passed, and I continued to come home in the summers and work at the pizzeria, he knew that I was a history student, and then a history grad student, and so on. So he would tell me stories, and we would make dough, and I listened. He talked to me about his home, Salonika, Thessaloniki. He used these two names interchangeably, Salonika, Thessaloniki. I had no idea why, or what implicit values can be embedded in a name. I'd listen as he pulled the dough from the vat, spilled it onto an enormous counter, and from there, he'd continue to talk as our muscle memory took over. Cut, weigh, roll, place the dough on a tray, repeat, 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 and continue to talk. Stories of Alexander the Great blended with talk of Nick's life in Greece just after the Second World War. And occasionally, he would mention Jewish people that he knew growing up in Salonika. Maybe it was the haze of being a teenager, working long hours and staying up late to clean and prep a kitchen. But I remember this talk of the Jewish community from his childhood as not quite registering with me at the time. He knew I was from one of the few Jewish families in town, and he wanted to bond. But Jews in Greece? I didn't know they had shtetls there. I'd walk away from these conversations with Nick, knowing a little bit more about Salonika, and with a vague sense that Jews lived in this place, this place that Nick's family still called home, sometimes called Salonika, sometimes referred to as Thessaloniki. But I lived in a town with very few Jews, yet I had family living in New York, a city with an enormous Jewish community. So my initial conclusion, as a person who in my youth knew exactly what it meant to be Jewish, was that Salonika must be like my town, a place with a few Jews, but not a hub of Jewish life, like New York City or Eastern Europe. To believe otherwise would mean that maybe I didn't know exactly what it meant to be Jewish. So all these years later, after those late nights in the pizzeria and all those trips to Brooklyn, I think it's long overdue to explore and actually dig a little deeper into these questions of just what it means to be Jewish, what it means to people across the world, people who perhaps I wasn't considering when I was a young person who thought he had a firm grasp and a solid definition of just what it meant to be Jewish. So right now, we're going to go to Salonika. We'll hear from Devin Nahr, someone who I wish I had spoken to in my youth, because his identity, along with his scholarly expertise, would have clarified so much of what I heard in this kitchen late at night talking to Nick. 
Perhaps it would have pushed me beyond my closed associations of being Jewish with speaking Yiddish and having a shtetl origin story. With Devin's help, we'll challenge and expand what it means to be Jewish. We'll start by looking at all those associations I had growing up with what it meant to be Jewish. And we'll ask, why was this definition closed in the first place? Why couldn't I imagine more than one way of being Jewish? We'll also explore what Salonika means as a home to Jews, and we'll learn more about the ways of being that can offer a much-deserved, a much-needed, and an unfortunately long-overdue recognition for Sephardic Jews, Ladino-speaking Jews, and Jews who lived alongside their Muslim neighbors in cities like Salonika. Devin will also take us to America, and share with us the experiences of Jews from Salonika specifically, but also more generally, Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews in America. So let's now listen to Devin. Yalla, let's learn together. My name is Devin Nahr, and I am the Isaac Al-Hadef Professor of Sephardic Studies and Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. My research focuses broadly on the Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jewish communities of the Ottoman and former Ottoman Empire and their diasporic offshoots across the world. The expulsion of Jews and Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula, from El Andalus, Sepharad, from Spain in 1492, was an enormously catastrophic and central part of Jewish and Muslim collective memory. But it's the aftermath of this story that we'll focus on. Who were the Jews of Sepharad? Where did they go? And what will we encounter when focusing on Jewish collective memory with their experiences in mind? The story of Jews in medieval Spain is definitely part of the general story of the Jewish experience. Everybody knows who Maimonides is, for example, and some of the other great thinkers and leaders of the medieval Spanish Jewish communities. I think what is less known is, in some ways, the trajectories afterwards. And, you know, another great figure that comes out of this world is Spinoza, who's of, you know, Portuguese Jewish background, winds up in Amsterdam. But there are yet other trajectories that after 1492, with the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, that uh, Jews wound up traversing over the course of the subsequent generations to North Africa and especially to the lands of what was then the, the Ottoman Empire from the Balkans into the Middle East. And those stories in the 19th and 20th centuries are much less well integrated into the uh, experience of Jewish history, into the narratives of Jewish history that we, we learn about and that we tell. Why aren't these stories more prominent in Jewish historical memory? Where does historical memory even come from? And who helps determine or even shape how it is that we come to understand ourselves by understanding the past? If you think about the origins of Jewish history writing in the 19th century, very much about German Jews in particular trying to demonstrate that they belong in Germany and that they belong in Europe and that they deserve rights as citizens in the countries in which they live and highlighting the experiences of Jews in the Muslim world, which was perceived at that time, and there are still lingering elements of that, as a world of despotism, of backward culture, of non-civilization, of non-whiteness. 
of non-Europeanness, those stories don't help with the general thrust and mission of the broader narratives and goals of Jewish history as it emerged as a discipline in the 19th century. It represents those stories as not only irrelevant, but also possibly dangerous, because it could undermine the very goals of Jewish history writing. The question that I'm trying to explore in my work is how do some of the dominant narratives that we tell about the Jewish experience in the last several centuries, how might they be altered or revised or maybe even undermined if we bring in the perspectives of Jews from the Muslim world? We're going to redirect our attention, starting with Salonika. And in the process, we aren't going to undermine the efforts of Jewish history writing. In fact, we may even fortify by expanding these efforts. And as we do so, what are we going to find? What waits for us in Salonika? Salonika was a major city on the Aegean Sea. For nearly half a millennium, it was home to the largest of the Ladino-speaking Jewish communities of the Ottoman Empire. And one of the distinctive features of this city and this community was that Jews comprised about half the population of the entire city over the course of those centuries, which is not unprecedented in Jewish history, but it is an unusual aspect of Jewish history, especially in the context of the Ottoman Empire, of a Muslim environment. But it was a really a multi-confessional, multi-linguistic environment. There were Jews, there were Christians, Greek-speaking Christians, Slavic-speaking Christians, Turkish-speaking Muslims, a variety of other communities there. And I think just this sort of the demographic imprint of Jews on the city and how that shaped the everyday rhythms of the city, the patterns of the city, like the, the, the entire city, the port, which is one of the most important port cities in the Ottoman Empire, closed down in observance of Shabbat. Jewish holidays were holidays of the city. Jews participated in every socioeconomic and professional strata of society. There were pumpkin seed sellers and ice cream vendors and merchants and factory owners, factory workers. There were lawyers, there were journalists, there were rabbis, there were prostitutes, there were gangsters. And by the time we get to the 19th and 20th centuries, there's a sense of Salonika as not only the demographic capital of the Ladino-speaking Jewish communities, but also as the cultural capital insofar as there would be more books and more newspapers and more robust theater seen in Salonika than really any of the other communities. Devin is talking about Salonika, a city that is currently in Greece, a country that in the 21st century, we understand as being part of Europe. So why would a Eurocentric narrative of Jewish history not include Salonika? known to so many today as a European city, and also, at one point in its history, a major Jewish city. The idea of making Greece part of Europe was a hundred-year process of the way in which Greece had to reshape its image to distance itself from the Ottoman context out of which it emerged, the Muslim environment out of which it emerged. You know, Athens at the time of Greek independence, was a small village of 3,000 people organized around a market and a mosque. And that's probably not how we think about Athens today. So the way that Greece had to reclaim its 
you know, its ancient roots as a cradle of democracy would transform the image of Greece and bring it into, into the European orbit. What is now Greece, including Salonika, was not always independent. It was long part of the Ottoman Empire. Let's let the city today remain in a European orbit, but let's return to the Ottoman history of the city, pushing back against the Eurocentrism that Devin mentioned earlier. What was Jewish life like in the Ottoman Empire, particularly in the 19th century, during the tail end of the empire? The Ottoman Empire was organized into discrete communities. That was sort of one of the functions and structures of the Ottoman Empire for many generations. And in the 19th century, those discrete communities will be more intensely formalized. The Jewish community will get its own statutes, and the Armenian community will get its own statutes and its own kind of modernized bureaucracies to govern those communities at the same moment in which the Ottoman state is developing a new ideology that tries to argue that all the different residents of the empire, regardless of their religious or ethnic backgrounds, should think of themselves and will be recognized as citizens of the empire. And those two kinds of dimensions, the desire of Jews to retain their sense of connection to the Jewish community, and also their desire and the demand of them to become part of the broader project of Ottoman citizenship, of Ottomanism across confessional lines, will be a dominant theme, especially of the second half of the 19th century and into the 20th century, so that Jewish communities in the Ladino-speaking areas of the Ottoman Empire will continue with their language, will continue with their institutions, will continue with elements of self-government, while also getting involved in new entities that emerge at the same time city municipalities and city councils, for example. And there will be the emergence of new spaces of interconnections between Jews, Christians, and Muslims at the market, at the theater, um, and of course, eventually in labor, labor organizing that will emerge in Salonika. Uh, Salonika will become uh, the major center of industrial labor organizing in the late 19th and especially in the early 20th century. And it will be home to the um, the largest uh, socialist movement in the Ottoman Empire, and subsequently will be the site where the Communist Party of Greece is established. And these movements are also, due to the demographics of the city, largely Jews are involved, and Jews are among the leaders, but there are also Turks who are involved. There are also Greeks who are involved. There are also Bulgarians who are involved. And so this would be another domain in terms of labor organizing in which the boundaries Uh, between the different communities would be crossed and there would be opportunity for partnership, collaboration, and solidarity against shared enemies in this case, which would be the bourgeoisie and the upper classes of any and all ethnic and religious background. Greece would eventually gain its independence from the Ottoman Empire, and its territory would expand to include Salonika. What did that mean for Jews? Was this a historical, political, and cultural development that they embraced? Did they want sovereignty from the Muslim-ruled Ottoman Empire? Was this Greek independence movement something that they didn't welcome? Was it something that they didn't want to happen? By 1912 and 1913, the Balkan Wars are waged, uh, which results in the annexation of Salonika into Greece on the same grounds, that there's a substantial population of Greeks in the city, and also that 
Salonika was once known as Thessaloniki. It was a major city in the Byzantine Empire. It has ancient Greek roots that go back to the time of uh, essentially just after the time of Alexander the Great, and that this city ought to be part of the Greek state in the terms that are being developed by nationalists in Europe at the time. So what this process does when Salonika winds up being occupied or in the process of being annexed by Greece, Jewish leaders are concerned. They are concerned about what it would mean for them to be constricted to the borders of a relatively small nation state. What will it mean for them to be in a Christian-dominated state? They referred to the anxieties. It brings back memories of the Spanish Inquisition. They referred to the Crusades. There is anti-Jewish violence that accompanies the Greek and Bulgarian troops, which both try to occupy the city uh, against Jews and also Muslims. So there are a lot of anxieties. And one of the proposals, one of the most interesting proposals that emerges out of this context of the Balkan Wars in 1912 and 1913 is a proposal to transform Salonika into an independent Jewish state. And what's very fascinating about this proposal is that it's not only a local, locally discussed phenomenon, it's discussed in the New York Times. The idea of a Jewish state was not limited in the early 20th century to the city of Salonika as a possible home for an independent state. This is also the period when political Zionism is being discussed and efforts are being made to imagine and establish a Jewish state in Palestine. Why would Salonika have made sense at the time, even as other currents of Jewish nationalism and Zionism were being discussed, with Palestine at the center of those conversations? Because there are more Jews in Salonika than there are in Palestine. There are more longstanding uh, Jewish institutions in Salonika than in Palestine. And they see Jewish autonomy, or at least the internationalization of the city, as a way to prevent future wars. In the region. Now, of course, we know that there's no Jewish state in Salonika, but the prospect, the possibility of Jewish autonomy in Salonika is very intriguing. It's a counterfactual, but one that also helps us understand that the paths that history takes are, yeah, by no means preordained, but there were multiple paths that were once being considered. An independent Jewish Salonika did not come into existence. Salonika, as we said, would become part of Greece. And in these years, towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, the political changes within the Ottoman Empire, the wars in the Balkans, and a degree of general uncertainty contributed to a Jewish diaspora from Salonika. So let's look at where the Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews of Salonika went and how they established themselves in these new locales. We'll start by thinking about what it meant for their identity and their sense of Jewishness as they left Salonika and became dispersed across different cultural and political contexts. You see beginning to form in their new places of settlement organized communities of Salonican Jews that they think of themselves as hijos exilados, as exiled children of la madre patria, of the motherland, which they describe as Salonika itself. And you can see caps of the Salonika Restaurant and cafe opens up on the Lower East Side around this time of New York City. 
and there would be the Salonican Brotherhood of America would be established during World War I. There would be the uh, Association Culturelle des Isolites Salonique. The Salonican Society would be established in Paris. There would be the Histadrut Ole Salonique, another Salonican society established in Tel Aviv. And these diasporic offshoots would be in regular conversation with the center, with the metropole, with Salonika, and with each other. People would move back and forth between them. People would go to Palestine, and they would discover that there's a, a famous, at least in my world, <laughs> a famous letter from the 1920s of a group of Salonika and Halutzim who go to Palestine, and they, they say to their great dismay, they're not being aided by the Jewish agency. And they say that the Holy Land is not the homeland of the Jewish people, but it's the homeland of the chosen part of the chosen people. Uh, Palestine is for the Ashkenazim, and they go back to Salonika. And so there's a lot of movement between these different nodes and movement back and forth through the press, through family connections, through commerce, and through charitable donations. And so you get a kind of a vibrant, transnational, almost even a globalized kind of Salonican dispersion, really in the, the first half of the 20th century. How exactly would Salonican Jews and diaspora talk about the city? How did they come to remember it? What you see emerging are, like in the Ladino press in the United States, you see poems about Salonica as La Tierra Bendicha. Salonica, La Tierra Bendicha, La Tierra Santa, the Holy Land. These are ways to say Holy Land, essentially. They would largely be written by Salonican Jews themselves, but they would be read and consumed by all the Ladino-speaking communities. And no other communities could really take on this kind of aura. The city took on a certain mystique. As Salonican Jews made their way to Palestine, New York, and many other places, or nodes of this diaspora. So with all of this relocating, should we understand this history as one of uprootedness? Or is there another way to understand these people and how they rooted themselves in the world? and how they rooted themselves in identity. Polyenracement, multi-rootedness. This is a concept that comes from a, uh, a well-known French philosopher named Edgar Morin, who was of Salonican parentage, but uh, born and raised in, in France. And he wrote a memoir in which he speaks about this concept of multi-rootedness as being characteristic of his own family being of Sephardic Jewish or Spanish Jewish origin, but of having had some converso roots as well, having connections to Italy, having lived in the Ottoman Empire, subsequently in Greece, but very much embedded in their Salonican environment. For him, this is the meaning of multi-rootedness because he sees himself, his family, and the broader community as not having to belong just to one place, but of having the possibility of thinking about themselves in connection to a variety of different geographies, a variety of different cultures. So this concept is very important because I think it destabilizes in some ways or provides an alternative or a complicating factor to thinking about homeland and diaspora as a dyad, as just two pieces. And here he sees a more fluid and multiple kind of arrangement he speaks about when his father and his uncle went to France, went to Marseille during World War I, 
he, he speaks about what were they going to declare themselves when they had to register? I said, well, they were, uh, they actually at the time they had Italian nationality, and, but they weren't going to call themselves Italian because they didn't want to go be sent to the Italian army. He didn't want to call himself Greek because he didn't want to get deported back to Salonika. And he didn't want to call himself Turkish in the context of World War I that might have gotten him arrested as an enemy alien. So what did they put down on their nationality, in the nationality form? Well, they put down Salonikan. These multi-rooted Ladino, Sephardic, Salonikan Jews would make their way to the United States. Many arrived in New York City. So what was their experience in New York? A city that, even at the time, was already home to an enormous Jewish population. A main response that Ottoman and former Ottoman Jews, Ladino-speaking Jews, had when they came to the United States, especially in New York, including those from Salonika, was shock. Insofar as they left a place in which they were unquestionably recognized as Jewish. In fact, they couldn't get out of being recognized as Jewish. And they come to a place like New York in which they cannot convince people that they are also Jewish because their places of origin, their names, their language, their traditions, their cuisine, all of the aspects that constituted their identity were not recognized as quote unquote Jewish in an American context, in which that a place in which that category was largely already inhabited, already taken by other communities, increasingly by Jews of Eastern European origin, of Yiddish-speaking origin. And so the first encounter is one of shock. There are reports in the press of Ladino-speaking Jews going to Jewish establishments or trying to find apartments on the Lower East Side, trying to prove that they're Jewish to their Jewish neighbors. They bring the Hebrew-lettered newspapers of the Ladino press. They bring their sidurim, their prayer books. They bring their talitot, their prayer shawls. This kind of non-recognition, this kind of sense that this group of newcomers were imposters, imposter Jews, it pervades the press and it pervades the memoir literature, and it pervades, it prevails still today in the collective memory of Ladino-speaking Sephardic Jews in the United States. In this U.S. context, even Ladino, the language spoken by Salonican and Sephardic Jews, would become part of this contestation of what it meant to be Jewish. The name of the language itself would be one of the most hotly contested pieces of the puzzle. The language that we now call Ladino was recognized as the Jewish language. One of the terms that was used to describe the language was Judeo or Judesmo, which means these are various ways to say Jewish in the same way that in Yiddish, Yiddish means Jewish. The Ottoman state referred to what we now call Ladino as Yehudija, as the Jewish language. Greeks referred to Ladino as Evraika. It means Hebrew, but they didn't use it to mean the Hebrew language. They used it to mean the language that the Hebrew people speak, which is Ladino. And so bringing this story into the United States, the Ladino-speaking Jews are confronted with yet another encounter, which is now forget the idea of Ladino as a Jewish language. That battle is quickly lost. 
because there are other languages that take precedence in terms of the connection between that language and Jewishness, namely Yiddish and Hebrew. Now the confrontation, or now one of the other dynamics that emerges is the relationship between what we call Ladino and Spanish, or the various varieties of Spanish that Ladino-speaking Jews would encounter, especially in places like New York City. Why did Puerto Ricans wind up settling in Harlem is because there were already Spanish speakers there, Ladino-speaking Jews. And so through Spanish, Ladino-speaking Jews are able to build up other kinds of social and political relationships with, with other Spanish speakers, which provides them with a kind of sense of community in response to the alienation that many of them experienced from the mainstream or dominant Jewish institutions and Jewish community life in the city that didn't necessarily recognize them as legitimate Jews. But it also creates a challenge because, well, what is this language then that we have been speaking? And they will begin to internalize many of the critiques that were already long internalized already in the Ottoman context that saw Ladino as a bastard tongue same critiques you could see of Yiddish, you could see of Ladino, a bastard tongue, a, uh, a language that is, uh, is not a real language. It is a mishmash of different kinds of languages. It needs to be purified it's gonna be, if it's going to be saved or it needs to be supplanted if Ladino-speaking Jews are really going to enter into the civilized world. And the encounter with Spanish speakers will result already by the end of World War I in Ladino-speaking, Ladino newspapers, arguing that we should stop using Ladino and just adopt normative Castilian Spanish. This would create great challenges for the fate of Ladino because already it has a relatively low status in the Jewish framework. And it would come to be ridiculed even in a Spanish context. There are many stories of American-born children of Ladino-speaking Jews going to public schools, you know, in the 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s. And they think, oh, I'm going to get an easy, I'm going to take Spanish. And then they go in the Spanish class and then they are being quizzed or whatever. And they think they know the answers. One of the shibboleths, one of the ones that seemed to always give them away was uh, the word for uh, watermelon, which in Spanish is sandia. But in Ladino, the word is of Turkish origin, which is carpuz. And you have stories of people saying in a Spanish class, you know, how do you say watermelon? And they say the word in Turkish. And uh, the teacher's like, what are you talking about? You don't know the language. It's not a real language. That's not the real. You're not, you're not doing it right. And so I think that that contributed to a sense of shame that was associated with the language that would, I think, contribute to the dissolution of the language as a language of everyday use, essentially, with the end of World War II. The last Ladino newspaper in the world, written in Hebrew letters, is published in New York City. It is known as Lavara, which means the stick, because it began as a satirical newspaper, and there was an image of a stick beating these cartoon characters who are supposed to be hypocrites. Well, that's the last Ladino newspaper published anywhere in the world in Hebrew letters, and that will fold in 1948. Here, for example, in one of the last issues of the last Ladino newspaper in the United States, Lavara, a final plea for the defense of the language. And they say this, it is clear that if we want to preserve the Sephardic youth so that they continue their interest in the destiny of their people and their devotion to the Jewish national and spiritual traditions, we must turn to the original source of Jewish vitality among the Sephardim, the Ladino language, 
we must make good use of Ladino to continue the great and noble Sephardic tradition, the customs and rituals of the Sephardim, and above all, cultivate the solidarity among the Sephardim that today find themselves dispersed to the four corners of the world. It will be of great assistance for the preservation and the progress of Sephardic Judaism in the United States. And that call essentially fell on deaf ears. And so you might say that, you know, can you live a culture, can you live a world in translation? What has the loss of Ladino in the United States meant for expressions of Sephardic identity, of Sephardic ways of being Jewish? Can you live a Ladino Sephardic life in the United States without Ladino? I mean, people are doing it insofar as there still are Sephardic Jewish communities. You know, Seattle, where I live, there are two Sephardic congregations. Uh, New York has uh, Los Angeles. They are dwindling in terms of their numbers, but I would say especially in Seattle, they are still alive and they're still very active communities that preserve the liturgy, they preserve the cuisine, they develop the music without having the language as the glue as it once was. Devin interacts with Sephardic identity, not only as a scholar, but also as an individual, a father, and a member of a family who studies the past but also thinks about the future. What does all of this look like on a personal level? In terms of how I think about it with my own family, my own world, I want my kids to have a sense of the multiple cultures and the multiple geographies and the multiple traditions to which they are connected. And you know that's one of the reasons why I am trying to speak to my children in Ladino. And apparently we're the only family in the entire United States that has undertaken such a crazy enterprise. And it's not so easy. But for me, I see it as an essential and vital component, uh, not only of my scholarship, but also of thinking about the future of this universe. I want to bequeath to my children. Now, whether they'll come out of my household speaking fluent Ladino, I don't know. But right now I only speak to my five-year-old in Ladino, which is pretty wild. But I want him to understand what Ladino is about, which it is a Jewish language, but a language that is a Jewish language that is rooted in Spanish. It is a Jewish language that's rooted in Spanish that was historically written in Hebrew letters, but grew up and thrived in the Muslim world. And it brought in like a sponge influences from all of the other languages of the Mediterranean, Arabic and Turkish and Greek and Italian and French. And I want my kids in the United States to see their connections to these other cultures and to these other peoples and to these other stories and to see that they are connected to their Muslim neighbors. They are connected to their Latinx neighbors and they are obviously connected to their Jewish roots. Growing up, I knew nothing of Ladino, only Yiddish. Thanks to Devin, there's at least one family in Seattle that will have a different experience. One that, at the very least, has had early and meaningful exposure to Ladino. Thinking back on those late nights in the kitchen with Nick, talking about his home, Salonika, Thessaloniki, I didn't realize how much depth there was to his passing references of knowing some Jewish people during his childhood. With the help of scholars like Devin, this is changing. Jewish history is being rewritten to challenge Eurocentrism. 
It's honoring Sephardic history and identity. It's shifting the mental landscape of Jewish collective experience. And it's normalizing the study of Jews and their relationships to Muslims. It's confronting intra-Jewish dynamics of privilege. All of this, all the work that Devin and others like him are doing, well, it's very exciting. And with time and a willingness to be less rigid in our thinking of what it means to be Jewish, perhaps the work that Devin and others are doing will bring about a more open and expansive understanding of the vastness and diversity of what it means to be Jewish. A special thanks to Devin Nahr. It was a treat talking to you. If you're interested in learning more about his work, Devin is the author of the book, Jewish Salonika, Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece. Thanks as always to Nico Rivers for music supervision, as well as mixing and mastering joint conversation. To learn more about Nico's work, visit nicoriversrecording.com. Alec Hudson is responsible for our graphic design and Klezmer theme song. Thanks to Alec for his talents and creativity. To learn more about Alec's designs, visit warbirdcreative.com. And for his music, visit alechudson.com. Our website design is by Jacob Lazara. Our episodes feature the music of the Boston-based Sephardic band, Voice of the Turtle. This group is no longer active, but their music is on Spotify, and their website remains a trove of Sephardic sounds. Listen and learn more at voiceoftheturtle.com. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for making high-quality music available to creatives everywhere. And thanks to you, our audience, for your time and curiosity. Stay engaged with Joy in Conversation by subscribing on your podcast platform of choice and visit our website, joyandconversationpodcast.com. Bashufiku, we'll see you next time.